I once just to troll myself and or the universe took a Manhattan to Manhattan path ride. Oh. It blew my mind. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have uh, Andrew Prokop uh, here in the D.C. office and Dylan Matthews, who has abandoned us for the uh, greener pastures of greater Newark, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> glad to have you guys here. Uh, I-, I wanted to talk about tax reform Um Sarah and Ezra and I uh, talked about this uh, a little bit on, on Wednesday's episode, um, but, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, this is a big sort of organizing principle for the Republican Party. It's going to be a overarching sort of theme in, in Congress. Um, and it's also not really clear that it's going to, to happen in any way. Um, D- Dylan and, and Andrew have both recently written great stories about this. Um, and I, I thought I'd start, Dylan, with, you know, can you, can you lay out a, a little bit like what what was in this tax framework that that got released? Like, like what is it? What what is a framework even? Sure. So the framework is it's not a, a finished piece of legislation, and uh, the people touting it uh, in the White House and Congress are sure to tell you this because it's it's uh, a way to get out of answering a lot of specific questions about it. Um, but it does lay out. It's sort of like a campaign plan. It's like that level of specificity, and so it's laying out roughly what they think the the tax rates on the individual side should be, what uh, tax breaks they're willing to close, uh, what they are going to try to get the corporate rate down to, and then sort of a few assorted other measures. Um, so I think two of the few things that Republicans agree on um, and have agreed on for years are that we should get rid of the estate tax and the alternative minimum tax. And so it includes that and then gets into sort of slightly more detail about what to do with, with corporate and individual taxes. Um, so the corporate side, the big thing is that they're going to try to cut the rate from 35 to 20 percent. That's obviously a very, very large percentage cut. Uh, and they claim that this is going to happen through some changes to the base so that, that you're using a lower rate, but you're taxing more profits from corporations. They have not given a lot of detail about how that's going to happen. There are some gestures vaguely, but there are also gestures about ways that they want to shrink the base and tax fewer profits. Uh, and then on the individual side, uh, the plan is to sort of consolidate the seven rates we have into three or four rates. Uh, the, the bottom rate is going to be a little higher. The top rate is going to be a little lower. Uh, so, But they're going to try to compensate for that for low-income people by expanding the standard deduction and expanding the child tax credit. Um, so that's the, the vague trade-off they're offering to, to people at the bottom end. The tricky thing is that when you're looking at all of this together, corporate taxes, most people think, are paid by people who own corporations who tend to be really rich. Yes. Uh, it certainly seems like they're going to cut the top rate for, for individuals. Um, and so it seems very clear that very wealthy people are going to benefit a lot from this. And the estate tax. And the estate tax, yeah, which is sort of almost comically progressive. I mean, like what's only, the, what, what, what's the, the current cutoff for, for estate tax? It's I like believe the exemption four, is like, yeah, four or five million. Um, so if your estate is less than that, you pay nothing. Above that, you pay some sort of reasonable percentage of, of the amount above that. And you can get, a, and sort of sophisticated tax planners can get around it in any number of ways. But only like a few hundred 
people pay it every year. Um, it's it's only very very wealthy uh, households. It doesn't raise much money, but it, what money it does raise, it raises really progressively. So so we know that this whole package is super good for rich people, and we don't really know what it does for middle and lower income people. Partly because they haven't told us what the brackets like where they stop and end. Like they've right. said, they've said the, there's going to be three rates, right? It's right. Be, but they haven't said who will pay them or why. Right. It's it's almost wackier than that. Yeah. So like there's a there's a bottom twelve percent rate which is higher than the the ten percent rate now, but they won't say where it ends. Um, they say that there's going to be a top thirty five percent rate, but then there also might be a mystery rate. Uh, that's above 35% and they won't say what percentage that is or what income it will apply to. And so it's kind of wishy-washy. And so there are some things in it that are really bad for people in the middle class, like raising the bottom tax rate. Uh, they also want to get rid of the state and local tax deduction, which is really important for people, especially in sort of high tax states like New Jersey, Washington, D.C., um, as it turns out, States Utah, that we live in. States that we live in, but also states like Utah that the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee happens to live in, yeah. um, uh, which is just tricky. And so they're doing all that, but then they're also expanding the the standard deduction. They're expanding the child tax credit. They haven't said by how much, but they say they're doing that. And so sort of figuring out how that all washes out is tricky. Uh, the Tax Policy Center made a run at it, and, and it seems like something like 30 to 40 percent of middle class people, especially people in in sort of like the upper middle class, like the 80 to 90th percentile, um, are going to be paying more. And so the majority of people get a tax cut, but a very significant minority uh, get a tax hike. And so you're in this awkward situation where Gary Cohn, Trump's head economic advisor, has been asked, like, can you guarantee that there's going to be a tax cut for middle class people? And he can't do it because, like, he like he just can't guarantee that given the facts on the table. Well, he could lie. He could lie. That's yeah, true. didn't Steve Mnuchin said that this plan was going to reduce the deficit by a trillion dollars and that everyone was going to get a tax cut. So I think that's probably, like, the way forward as a as an administration spokesperson, at it's, least. it's it's true that the producer of Suicide Squad is saying some like unbelievable <laughs> and untrustworthy things. Um, he's um, you know, there's a way to it, uh, but I mean, this is, I think, words. It's important to get at. You sort of look at it from afar, and it's like, well, okay, there's going to be like some big tax cuts for the rich, and maybe some smaller tax cuts, you know, child tax credit, whatever else for for everybody else, and that's sort of roughly the George W. Bush template. Right, who who put forward a tax plan that, you know, liberals complained was incredibly regressive, was incredibly skewed toward rich people. But it was, in fact, true that everybody got a tax cut from that tax plan. Uh, even, even I got a tax cut with some, like, rinky-dink, part-time, uh, you know, college job, I think. Um, and at the end of the day it was it was difficult to mobilize opposition right it was it was hard to say to people well your tax cut is small compared to some other guys tax cut so nobody should get a tax cut and that's where this sort of broadly speaking you know if if you step really far away from it that that's what the plan kind of kind of looks like except of course then you have a big sort of increase in the deficit which they also say they're not doing right um, yeah, there was a really good paper after the Bush tax cuts by uh, Larry Bartels called Homer Gets a Tax Cut, and sort of getting into this dynamic of, of people like not being as envious as you might think that they're 
that they're benefiting, but benefiting less than someone. Like if you're gaining in absolute terms, you're, you're not going to be resentful of this. But yeah, but they've backed themselves into this corner where they don't want this thing to cost too much. They they make claims about it not adding to the deficit that that may or may not be credible and, and may or may not be be enforced by more moderate Republicans in the Senate who who are more serious about wanting it to not add to the deficit. And so if you want this to not add to the deficit and you want the corporate cuts, that money has to come from somewhere. And so you can't just do the sort of blanket everyone's a winner approach that the Bush pioneered. Uh, you you got to make choices about winners and losers. And that sort of upsets the whole political calculus of, of why this wouldn't upset the middle class. And a lot of this is just sort of Republican leaders working backward from what Senate rules allow. Back uh, during the Bush administration, like we remember it as Bush passed a big tax cut, but really the plan was crafted in a way that could work in the Senate's budget reconciliation process to avoid the filibuster. And to do that, the plan had to abide by Senate rules. Uh, And those rules state that any bill passed through reconciliation can't increase the deficit after 10 years. It can add to the deficit in the short term, but it can't keep adding after 10 years. So the way Bush passed a big tax cut that added a lot to the deficit, uh, despite that, is um, he set up all of his tax cuts to expire in 10 years. And so basically, Senate scoring would uh, score the bill in such a way that it would add to the deficit in the short term. But then in year 11, uh, the tax cuts all vanish. And uh, suddenly, we're back to the status quo, and, uh, and, and it won't add to the deficit in the long term. The reason that Republicans don't want to do this again is they want to make some basically like a sweeping overhaul of the corporate tax code. They they want to do what is thought of as tax reform, uh, not just pure tax cuts. You know, this reform will involve a lot of tax cuts, but they want to do it in such a way that it's permanent and that will last beyond 10 years. They've, they've been... Um, very hesitant to making these big changes to the corporate tax code expire or setting like a, a sunset on them. Uh, Doug Holtz Eakin, who's um, one of the leading uh, conservative uh, economists promoting this effort, told me that uh, it would be lunacy to change uh, the foreign taxation of corporate income to to a more um, territorial system and then to have it just vanish after a few years. They really want to make these corporate tax overhaul changes permanent. And to do that, they can't add to the deficit after 10 years. And to make that be the case, they need to come up with some revenue. Uh, They need to either close deductions or, or basically come up with some revenue that will balance out the tax cuts that they are doing as a part of their corporate tax reform in the long term. I think it's it's worth zeroing in on, on this corporate piece of it because it's both sort of the conceptual centerpiece and also, I feel like, a, a black hole into which they've gotten sucked for, for no good reason, right? And and so the, the deal with, with corporate income taxes broadly is 
The United States levies a 35% corporate income tax rate, which is high by international standards. Uh, Most statutory rates are lower than that. Uh, But then famously, the effective rate that companies pay is quite a bit lower than that. And it it varies – from year to year across the business cycle quite a bit. But it it's gotten as low as an effective rate of 21%. I think sometimes pops up to 26%, uh, 27% or so. Uh, then another thing is that the United States purports to collect taxes on global profits, the worldwide profits of companies that are headquartered in the United States. Uh, that's a little bit unusual. Uh, but then there's also a ton of shenanigans that that companies use to sort of get out of that whole shebang. So the situation clearly is a potentially promising terrain for some kind of reform, right? When the statutory rate is 35%, but you're actually collecting in the mid-20%, you clearly could do some kind of reform where you eliminate a lot of deductions and you bring the rate down quite a bit. Uh, The Obama administration had a proposal along those lines that I believe had a 28% tax rate. That was what they thought, you know, they could sort of work out mathematically and including keeping a handful of the most prized sort of deductions. Mitt Romney in his 2012 campaign, he was more aggressive than that. He promised that he was going to be able to get it all the way down to 25%. uh, But he didn't have a lot of details about how that was going to happen or, or how it was supposed to work. And the Republicans seem to have I don't I don't quite know how to say this but I mean they they pulled this 20% number out of their collective asses. It doesn't it doesn't bear any relationship to the numbers to the math to, to the finances particularly because they simultaneously want to completely give up on collecting any global uh revenue for, from companies. So they're they keep talking about tax reform, and and they seem serious about it, like serious enough that they're trying to make this permanent, as, as Andrew was saying, and like running around telling people it would be ludicrous or insane for this to not be done on a permanent basis. But just in that part of it, I don't see how it how it works. And and then there's this uh, maybe Dylan, can, can you explain the expensing thing? Sure. Uh, oh man, expensing is my favorite thing to talk about. But so, I mean, this is because they keep saying, right? It's like they're going to broaden the base and lower the rates. They're going to broaden the base. Right. They're going to lower the rates. But then also they have this idea, which is the opposite so, of that. Which is the opposite. It's. I mean, it's often paired with something that the the broadens base. So the basic idea is that currently the way that the corporate tax works, both in the U.S. and in most places, is when you like build a factory or if you like buy some equipment. You can't deduct that all the first year. You have to sort of depreciate it over the time that it's used. Um, So, like, let's say Vox Media buys an office building somewhere uh, for, like, $10 million. Nice. It it can't. Yeah, we're crushing it. Uh, You can't, like, take $10 million off of your corporate taxable income that year. Uh, there's there are rules about how long you're gonna act like that's that's being used. I think for for real estate, it's often like 20 years. I want to say, um, and so you you gradually take like a 20th each year and deduct that. So this raises more money than just letting everyone deduct everything immediately. Uh, but a lot of economists don't like it because if you let everyone deduct their investments immediately, they'll make a lot more investments. And we're currently at this point where corporations are, instead of investing in new factories and things, are just sort of giving money back to their shareholders a lot, uh, which a lot of people think is a problem. And so 
full expensing basically just says you can deduct the full cost immediately. Uh, and it's mostly a Republican proposal, but there are a lot of Democratic economists who think it's a good idea, too. Jason Furman, um, sort of after leaving the Obama administration, came out as a supporter of, of, of full expensing, which he, he kind of had to be quiet about while serving in a Democratic administration. And So, so like, this would basically be, this would be a bonus for companies that plow a large share of their revenue into, like, new stuff. Right. New factories that employ people, new research, new, like it's, it's a way to get, get companies investing rather than just like plowing money back to shareholders is, is the dream of how this would work. And it's usually paired with, uh, with a change to disallow, uh, the deduction that is currently there for interest you pay on loans. So currently we have this super messed up system in the U S where, the effective rate on an investment if you borrow money to do it is negative because you can deduct the interest on any loans you take out. Like the government is effectively paying you money to take out debt. And this has like super messed up consequences, particularly in the financial industry, that that if you're wondering why it became viable for like Goldman Sachs to take out like 100x leverage on, on various bets, like that helped a lot. Right. So I, um, I think we should we should understand the sort of multi-step process here, right? So it's like investments, uh, durable capital investments, right? You buy an airplane, but you you don't get to deduct that full cost right, right away. So you, you have to depreciate it over time. So then you might think looking at that like, oh, that's bad. That makes it too difficult for companies to finance investment in the future. So that was addressed by saying, well, the interest on your loans will be tax deductible. So now I borrow money, I buy the airplane, I write down the value of the airplane over time, and also each year I deduct the interest that I'm paying on the loan. So no cash sort of actually deposited my corporate treasury to buy the plane, but I'm getting a big sort of tax deduction for it. So we're saying, okay, that supports adequate sort of physical investment in the economy. But then making interest deductible is also a huge subsidy to just sort of pure financial plays, right? Right. And it encourages companies to make investments by borrowing money rather than using money they already have, which is like a big distortion. It encourages them to use money they already have for like dividends and stock buybacks. Right. So, so, So Apple has hundreds of billions of dollars in its corporate accounts and also sells tons and tons of bonds. Right, right. Like Apple is not a company that needs a lot of money in the conventional sense. You don't think of them as like desperately going to banks and being like, you got to help us out, man. But like they do that because they have a big tax reason to do that. And so the dream is to to, to fix all of this by by this, this reform of you do full expensing and then you can't do the thing with debt anymore. Um, the problem is that this is expensive and uh, it's especially expensive early on because people then sort of deduct a whole lot of, of investments and that's really costly in the near term. It's less costly in the long run because like 10 years on, they're no longer deducting money for that same investment. But it costs a lot up front and it, it reduces the base of corporate profits that you're taxing. And so you probably need a slightly higher rate. Uh, if you are if you don't want to add to the deficit and you want to do this, uh, you, you probably have to jack the corporate rate up to, to pay for that. Now, maybe that's okay. Like I think a lot of economists who support this would say, this gets rid of a lot of what they think is bad about high corporate tax rates. And so maybe it's all right to, to have a higher rate if it's only taxing sort of profits that, that don't uh, 
that that come in excess of 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 sort of normal investments. Right. But so the but the basic thing is that the Republican framework has like three key commitments on corporate taxes. One is to cut the rate to 20%. One is to stop taxing foreign profits. One is to do the full expensing. But then also there's supposed to be a revenue neutral tax reform. Right. And so they, they try to square the circle in like bizarre ways. So the, the current way that the framework works is that they do full expensing for five years, which is stupid. Like it's it's just lunacy. basically t- <laughs> yeah it's lunacy. Well, it is even more lunacy that like I think sort of making it temporary for some other stuff is stupid. Just in that like companies need time to plan, and it's like weird to to just like change the rules very frequently, and and it's disruptive and costly. Expensive. It's stupid in that it's just like a five year amnesty. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, and so it's just a time-shifting thing. You're not growing the economy. You're just saying, like, you should do these investments in 2017 to 2022 instead of the next five years. Okay. I'm Might help Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Okay, I'm going to take, take, take a break, and then uh, I'm going to talk about an old book. Leaving the house, especially these days, can, can turn into, like, this world's most amazing scavenger hunt. It's like, you know, get your wallet, get your keys, get your phone. I got a kid. You know, you got to get, like, his little water bottle, a million little things here and there. And, and it's it can be, like, a weird pain in the ass. But on the other hand, it's like losing stuff, you know, that's annoying. It's, it's terrible. You don't want to do it. You want to keep track of things. Uh, and now there's, there's a solution to that, and it's Tracker. Um, eight years ago, they changed everything with their first tracking device, and they've done it all again with the new Tracker Pixel. Uh, so with Tracker Pixel, you never need to worry about losing anything again. Uh, it's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You just put the Tracker Pixel on anything you tend to lose. Keys, wallets, uh, you could put it on a cat. I don't have a cat, but they want you to know that you could put it on your cat. I have it on my keys. Super useful. It's small enough to fit anywhere. And so if you misplace anything that has the Tracker Pixel attached, you use your smartphone app and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. Plus it's got an LED light so you can find it in the dark, which is incredibly useful. Uh, I, I I'm always lost in the dark. Uh, And a really great feature is that if the thing that you've lost is your phone, right? If your keys are in your pocket, but you don't know where you left your phone, you can press the button on your tracker pixel, and then your phone's going to ring, even if the phone's on silent mode. It's a huge lifesaver. And you can even locate an item that's miles away, right? If you, you, like, actually leave it somewhere and you go someplace else, uh, every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. It's like a Waze, but for finding your stuff. And so you know, like, okay, I left that in the restaurant over there, uh, and at least you know, you can you can get it back later. Uh, so they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee. That means you have truly nothing to lose. So you go to thetrackr.com slash weeds to get 20% off any order. That's thetrackr.com slash weeds for 20% off thetrackr.com slash weeds. Okay, so so Andrew, I, I see you, you've been reading Showdown and Gucci Gulch lately. Yes, I have. So, uh, this is a book that was written about the 1986 tax reform law that was passed under President Reagan, and he signed it into law, and it's basically held up as the gold standard for how tax reform can actually happen. And I think this book explains why journalists are so enthusiastic about tax reform, primarily because the book is really good, rather than because the 86 tax reform is that good. Yeah, it's um, it's a fun story. It's written as basically an underdog story of, you know, all the politicians, both uh, 
Reagan and uh, the key Senate Republicans uniting with uh, various characters on the Democratic side to do this reform that they think would be good and sort of, uh, you know, have benefits for all America and standing up to special interests and lobbyists who are fighting furiously to try to kill it. That That's basically the narrative presented in the book. And it's a narrative that I think has been, I mean, this is a narrative that's been largely sort of accepted. I mean, one thing you might have seen over the past three months is some sort of sneering journalistic headlines, like, is there really going to be tax reform or is it just going to be tax cuts? And like the, the reason for that is that people... People like this book about the 86 tax reform, right? The, the heroes, they didn't just do some lame-ass tax cut. They did a tax reform that, like, it brought tax rates down with broad benefits for everyone, but they also took on the special interests and, and closed these loopholes. But I think a, a crucial thing about this, right, I mean, that's, I think, clearly true, regardless of the specifics of the book, is that this was a bipartisan action. Yes. Um, so at the time, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, Republicans controlled the Senate, and Ronald Reagan was president. The person who first sort of came up with the idea to close and end a bunch of deductions and loopholes and and sort of uh, use that to pay for cutting the rates uh, was Senator Bill Bradley of New Jersey, who was a Democrat. And uh, he, this was kind of his big idea. He uh, was a rich basketball player, and he uh, thought the tax code was crazy and had too many loopholes and was too complex and, you know, that rich people could take advantage of all these, um, you know, deductions, loopholes, and, and thought that this way, you know, whenever people try to end these deductions in the past, generally what happened is that uh, some sort of special interest or lobbying group would would lobby and and get it kept in. And so his big idea was um, you could um, sort of swamp those individual special interest lobbyists by making sure a lot of people would benefit from the lower rates in general. So what happened with 1986 was that um, the business community was split in some ways because there were a lot of businesses that um, thought they would benefit from the rate cuts that were in this plan. And there were some that uh, were furiously opposed to um, having their loopholes closed. But in the end, enough kind of deals were cut. Uh, Certain loophole closings were scaled back. Other ones more or less survived intact. But uh, in the end, there were enough people who won or companies uh, who won from this legislation to get it through. And and I think it's important that it was it was conceptualized as, as a bipartisan effort, right? I mean, yeah. six, 60 votes was not, was not the issue because, because when you think about it, right, the legislatively, like the way you can take on some special interests is by being able to tell the special interests that you have some some room to maneuver. Right, that like just getting one senator on your side isn't necessarily going to scuttle the whole bill because you're playing with like the whole field of senators, and that's to me what just seems conceptually unsound about this. Like th- this Republican tax reform effort, it started with the the destination based cash flow tax concept, and then basically Walmart came out against it, and there's two Republican senators from Arkansas 
And they were like, well, I don't know about this, guys. And then, like, that's all she wrote. Because when you're doing a partisan tax bill, you can't say, you you can't be like, well, maybe I'm going to pick up a Democrat from Vermont on this idea and roll you like you want to stay on the team. Instead, it's like any group of three Republican senators can veto anything. So it's really hard to do anything that upsets anyone in, in a significant kind of way. I also think it's important to remember that the 86 tax reform, it wasn't just like bipartisan in that like people from both parties supported it. Like the ideas in it were substantially like had something for both sides. So the overall structure of it was that it raised taxes on corporations to lower them on individuals. It shifted the burden that way. That's the opposite of what the current plan is meant to do. It equalized treatment of capital and uh, and wage income. Um, so there was there was no difference in tax rates that people paid on on capital gains and, and dividends and stuff. That was a Democratic win. That was not a, a Republican win. That there there were things about it like the much lower rates that that obviously sort of played into Republican priorities. But there really was something that you could latch onto and claim is a win, regardless of what party you were in. Right. I mean, they they construed the preferential tax rate for capital gains as an example of a loophole. Right. right, that they were that they were closing, and whereas like saying there's going to be a cut in the estate tax is like the opposite of this. Right, I mean, Andrew, right. like your phrase was like people were going, so many people were going to benefit from the lower rates, right? But like so few people benefit from eliminating the estate tax. Yeah, if you actually close enough loopholes to pay off the the fiscal cost of eliminating the estate tax is not that big in the grand scheme of things, but the people who pay it are so small in number and they're so rich that to to finance to actually finance that by, you know, taking away piddling home office deductions or whatever else is like going to create a, a a huge circle of losers. Yeah, so you're right that this is not a conceived as a bipartisan tax reform effort in any way so far. They're hoping to pick up maybe a couple of stray Democratic votes if they can. Uh, but the Republican leadership has shown no inclination to make this sort of, you know, major policy compromises that would require getting a lot of Democratic support on something like this. Like, I don't think it would have been impossible to think of some kind of tax reform bill that Democrats would really like. But clearly, one of the main purposes of this bill is to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy by a lot. And uh, and they are trying to pay for that by, you know, closing, ending a bunch of deductions for um, uh, individuals in many cases. And um, so... One of the problems that's arisen lately is uh, you mentioned the destination-based cash flow tax. That was their first big idea of how to pay for this thing, and uh, and it got killed. So now their next big idea is to end or probably uh, it'll be scaled down to just limit the state and local tax deduction. So uh, I think you've talked about this on the weeds before, but uh, the problem here is that uh, – There are a bunch of Republican congressmen in uh, districts or states with a lot of taxpayers who who use this deduction. And uh, they are already furiously lobbying to get it scaled back. Now, this is something that if this was a bipartisan effort and, you know, 
it had a prospect of getting 80 votes, then maybe something like this would be kept in. But uh, but the margin in the House is difficult, and, and if a couple people object in the Senate, uh, then the whole thing goes down. So there's they're already talking about scaling it back. It's not clear how much it will be scaled back, but but it, it seems like it's not going to survive completely intact at this point. Okay, we should we should do another break, but but I, I want to talk about the budget because that plays into this in, in, in an interesting way. Everybody's talking these days about fake news, alternative facts, and the news media, and it's more important than ever to, you know, get some news, get some information from, from reliable sources and not just rely on, on social feeds all the time. Uh, and, and so Texture is a great app that has some of the most trustworthy, credible publications in the world. Time Magazine, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, and many others are in there. And, and they give you access to not just, like, your favorite magazines, but the latest in investigative journalism, U.S. politics, domestic and international news uh, all, all around the world. Uh, so, so what is it? Look, this is an app that is sort of jointly produced by a bunch of the world's leading magazine producers. Uh, and so it lets you read on your smartphone or, or on your iPad. It especially looks really great on the iPad. The full sort of design and layout of every magazine, and they go beyond the magazines themselves. You can find and enjoy articles you want to read with daily recommendations. They've got exclusive interactive features. They've got videos and, and more. Uh, there's so many great ones out there. I mean, there's sort of, you know, newsy, politicsy ones that, you know, you might be interested in if, if you listen to the weeds, but they've also got Sports Illustrated, they've got Fast Company, they got Rolling Stone. It's all in there. It's searchable. You mark what you like. You can check out back issues. There's bonus content. Uh, normally, it's $9.99 a month, which is, is honestly an insanely good deal. 200 magazines for $9.99 a month. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash weeds, you get a 14-day free trial. And, and free is like, well, you can't beat that deal. Um, you could subscribe to like one or two magazines, or you could have all your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less. So start your free trial now. Download the Texture app. Uh, they're offering our listeners a 14-day free trial. You go to texture.com slash weeds. That's 14 days to try Texture for free at texture.com slash weeds. Texture.com slash weeds. Okay, so uh, Andrew was was talking about the the state and local tax deduction, and you know a, a number of House Republicans uh, representing the now infamous sort of affluent suburban districts, uh, often districts that have been Republican for a long time, but showed a, a trend away from from Donald Trump. A lot of vulnerable Republican members, and uh, the, the House passed a, a budget resolution this week, which sort of facilitates the the tax reform and it includes closing of of the salt deduction and i heard from from a number of people who had sort of called up uh, congressmen in in southern california and had been told by their office that well you know representative so and so wanted to move the process forward but does not believe that will be in in final legislation um so can you give some from like like what does that mean like why why does it move the process forward well, so what Republicans are trying to do right now is to set up the budget reconciliation process in the Senate that will allow them to pass a tax bill with only 51 votes rather than the 60 that are needed to advance a bill past the, the filibuster in most cases. this is we, we already saw this happen this year. They set it up for uh, Obamacare repeal. And uh, that ended up failing, and uh, it, the reconciliation instructions that they set up for Obamacare repeal have now expired. So basically, they need to set tax reform on this track again, this majority vote 
track. And the way you do that is by passing a budget resolution. So you basically have to um, lay out projected spending levels for the government. But the budget resolution is a weird process because a lot of it just isn't real. Uh, A lot of what's written in it um, won't become law, will never become law, because the vast majority of spending bills in the Senate have to pass with, they have to beat a filibuster. They have to get over 60 votes, which means they will need Democratic support, which means that, um, you know, you can put in big cuts in a budget resolution, and the budget resolution itself can pass with just a majority, but then the cuts themselves can't need to be separately appropriated. So, um, so, so, so in a sense, the, the real budget is the reconciliation instructions. The main purpose of this is just to set up the reconciliation process for but, tax. So, right. So, so when you're reading about this, like as a, you know, consumer of the news, right? You have to understand the difference between the budget could call for like cutting the education department budget in half. Right. But if it doesn't contain reconciliation instructions to do that, then it doesn't carry any legislative force. Like the education department's budget will be appropriated through the normal 60 vote process sometime in the far out future in a more bipartisan way that will be more moderate. But the resolution itself can just have these sort of made up numbers so people can go home and say, you know, I voted to to whatever, eliminate the, the Department of Commerce. Um, yeah, and that's the what we're going through right now. And the, the point in the process we're at is that the House on Thursday passed its budget resolution that has reconciliation instructions. Now, the Senate has drawn up an entirely different budget resolution. Um, so this was the process of some negotiation between Senators Pat Toomey and Bob Corker, who are two uh, bigwigs on the Senate Budget Committee. And so the Senate appears to be where the real action is. Nobody is taking the House budget resolution particularly seriously. But, you know, because the Senate is going to be where the biggest challenge is, um, what they have drawn up is interesting. Um, They've set up budget reconciliation for tax reform. However, they've said that a tax reform bill is allowed to add $1.5 trillion to the deficit over the first 10 years. So that is where their target is for how much tax reform, or at least the maximum that tax reform can cost in the short term. So now they have to actually pass that through the Senate. And um, that may be tricky. They'll, they'll probably get it done, but um, but there but there could be some issues. Rand Paul has um, made some noises, and and he voted against the um, the budget resolution that set up Obamacare on reconciliation because he didn't like that it didn't balance the budget. Um, some he other, says that's why he voted against. Yes, right. uh, another senator, uh, Thad Cochran, uh, is sick. Uh, he's supposedly going to come back. In mid-October, but I hear he's in the hospital. Yes, well, D- Donald Trump said he was in the hospital, and that doesn't appear to be true. But uh, but he does appear to be not doing 
too well, and he's not in Washington, even though uh, the Senate is, and he's he's recuperating from some ailments. So we'll see if he does make it back. But basically, the point is that in the end, the Senate is going to, if they want to do tax reform through budget reconciliation, they have to pass this budget resolution first, and then the House and the Senate have to agree on the exact language of this budget resolution. And only then will the reconciliation's instructions be set up. So what does, Dylan, does this $1.5 short-term deficit, I mean, does this correspond to anything, like, clearly in in the framework? Or is this just sort of two different, like, piles of numbers floating past each other? It seems like two files of numbers floating past each other. So we don't have a score for what this framework um, will actually cost. The, the estimate that the Tax Policy Center came up with is about three three point two trillion over ten years, and which is a, and they're assuming right that like twenty to thirty percent of people wind up paying higher taxes. Right, they're assuming twenty to thirty percent of people pay higher taxes. They. Uh, have not modeled the growth effects uh, of this, which Republicans say they want to include in the score, that they say they want to do some version of dynamic scoring that shows that that the tax cuts will partly pay for themselves. Um, Then again, if they actually want to do that, the people who are going to do that score are the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, who are not they're they're not as wildly optimistic as as the Trump administration is about the ability of tax cuts to pay for themselves, to put it lightly. Um, so yeah, 1.5 trillion just doesn't correspond to that. Now, there's been an all-out assault on the tax policy center that the Trump administration has been been waging. Um, uh, Kevin Hassett, their chief economist, went to TPC to talk at an event, and and when they asked like, "Why are you insulting us?" Uh, he was like, "That's what happens when you behave irresponsibly," and went on to say that that he thought there would be be massive revenue coming from economic growth and and you don't even know what you're talking about and we don't have the final thing yet. And so if I take him at his word, he has no idea what this thing costs. Uh, he does not know if it costs uh, 1.5 trillion. He does not know if it costs double 1.5 trillion. Um, he's just saying stuff. All right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll take a take a final break and, and then let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about the the dynamic score. Why would you ever buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? Uh, you know, when we wouldn't, and with Everlane, uh, you never need to overpay for, for quality clothes. They make premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you your real costs so you know that you're never overpaying. Uh, they want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Uh, and because they sell directly to you, the prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everyone's clothes look better, they cost better, and they last longer. Uh, Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt, I've got some of these, and they're exactly what they should be. They're simple, they're stylish, they're made from quality materials. Uh, My wife loves her her Cashmere Crew uh, sweatshirt. Um, I I really like the the sort of t-shirts, and I like my, um, I've got a Weekender bag for them that's that's really, really great. Uh, They've got other cool stuff out there, slim fit jeans, uh, straight fit denim, uh, men's Japanese Oxford. Uh, I've got a few of their stuff, and I really enjoy it. These are timeless essentials. They're sort of like the basic build blocks of any great wardrobes, and they give you just what you're looking for. No frills, but real quality. They're inexpensive and affordable, but they're really high-quality, sort of basic stuff. You know, you live your life with, with these things. You, you can really use them. And so right now, you get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com weeds. That's everlane.com weeds. Everlane.com weeds. 
Okay, so I I, I mentioned this uh, on the last episode of the weeds, but I, I went back and back and looked at the paper, and there's a there's an interesting 2006 uh, Office of Tax Analysis thing that George W. Bush's Treasury Department came out with, and they're making the case for a dynamic score for making the Bush tax cuts permanent, uh, which. As we discussed previously, they sort of passed them in 2001 with this like, wink, wink, it'll go away after 10 years, and then immediately started saying Congress should make these tax cuts permanent. Uh, So they had Treasury do a dynamic score, which was designed to show that this was not really as expensive as, um, you know, Democrats might think it was. And the result, I I had to say, is um, it's – it's very inconvenient, actually, for Republicans because what they say is that the tax cuts would do a lot to boost growth if they are financed by spending cuts, right? So so, so the paper makes the case that making the Bush tax cuts permanent paired with some Bush-era proposals on Social Security or Medicare or whatever else would, like, boost the economy. I think they say 0.7% per year, um, which sounds like a little, but actually is kind of a lot. But that's not what's being proposed here, right? And it's it, it goes to show that that's so far from this will boost growth so much that we don't need to have offsets, right? Is that, like, right. the the uh, what, what they could get someone to agree to was if we offset this, it would be really good for the economy. But it seems like what Hassett wants is a score that's going to say this grows the economy so much that it doesn't need an offset. Right. Well, and I also, just to be very clear about this, if they were doing that, if they were financing all of this with spending cuts, like, I don't know if it's literally impossible to find $3.5 trillion in cuts over 10 years to pay for tax cuts and to have the whole package not be a massive net benefit reduction slash tax increase for middle class people, but it certainly seems like that's inevitable. Right. Like, well, I mean, I mean that that was always the, why the Bush administration could get its tax cuts passed, but couldn't ever get this permanent with the offsets passed. Is that it? It transforms very quickly from everyone gets a small tax cut to everyone gets a small tax cut and in exchange, like mom is kicked out of her nursing home, right? And like that right. that doesn't that doesn't fly. Uh the only really big benefit programs, you know, help help the poor but but also help help the middle class a lot and and the Trump administration has not I mean it's been interesting to me but like they have not even notionally suggested that the way they're going to finance this giant tax cut is by reducing government spending even though um, in some sense, that's the traditional idea of conservative e- economic policy, at least as as I remember. I mean, I mean, have I missed something? Like, is somebody in Congress saying like, what happened to cutting spending? Like, there's some rumbling from people like Mark Meadows and in the Freedom Caucus about sort of maybe we get some food stamp cuts in here, and maybe we get some Medicaid cuts that we couldn't get through uh, in Obamacare repeal. And but a you couldn't get those cuts through an Obamacare repeal for a reason. Um, they they hurt people who who members of Congress were interested in protecting, and and two, if you really just wanted to stick it to the poor, and and like really only like that limits how much money you can make. Like I I it would be a tragedy if if food stamps were wiped out over the next ten years. It would not pay for this tax plan. And and this I think brings us back to. The central challenge Republicans are facing here, which are are kind of just various versions of the same dilemma, which is that any attempt to actually uh, pay for 
uh, a large chunk of their big tax cuts, which they seem to have to do because of Senate rules, at least in the long term, at least mostly, even if you do have an optimistic dynamic score of some kind, uh, any attempt to actually do that uh, is you know, naturally unpopular because of the people whose taxes go up or whose benefits would be cut. So, um, and yet, you know, the political formula that uh, George W. Bush did use successfully in passing his two major tax cut bills was that everyone would benefit. Like, that is the politically popular thing to do. And that is what Republicans themselves have have often promised like one of the issues that had come up this week is that uh, Rand Paul basically read the tax policy center report on the Republican framework and he expressed incredulity that uh, as many as 30% of middle class taxpayers could see their tax bills go up because of the Republican tax reform. And I was, was a little incredulous. Yes. And he was like, this is ridiculous. And uh, he has been framing his opposition as kind of warning Republicans of an obvious, very serious political problem. Uh, I, I mean, sometimes, you know, Rand Paul is a libertarian with idiosyncratic views on stuff. But here, I think his views uh, would be pretty broadly shared among Republican politicians, like raising taxes, even on 30% of the middle classes seems to be a, a pretty unpopular thing to do. And uh, so he wrote uh, an op-ed on Breitbart this week, and uh, he, he had a great little paragraph here where Rand Paul wrote, this isn't about the tax cut being perfect. It's just about it not being a tax hike because of some policy wonk goal no one in America is asking for. I guarantee you this, when we pass a bill, no one is going to cheer for bullet points on a white paper. All they will do is ask, do I pay more or less under your plan? And that is kind of, you know, a big challenge that Republicans are facing right now. Like the popular thing to do is just to cut people's taxes. And because they want to do this big corporate tax overhaul and, and make it permanent, they're looking for all this ways to raise more tax revenue. And, and they're finding out that that's unpopular and difficult. I'm finding a strange new respect for Rand Paul because I, I remember when Trump won, I said to myself, well, at least I'm going to get a tax cut. And and now it, it really looks to me like I'm actually going to get a tax increase. And I'm, I have to say, that's, that's not what I've looked to the Republican Party to do is raise my taxes. It was, uh, you know, bad enough when, when Obama wanted to take away 529 account scams from, from precious upper middle class professionals. Uh, but he at least, you know, wanted to do it to, to finance a, a good cause of, of universal preschool or something. Thing. Um, to to ask, you know, upscale but not super duper rich professionals to pay higher taxes in order to have <laughs> it so Facebook it doesn't need to pay any taxes on its European revenue does not seem like incredibly compelling to me as either politics or or substance really. Um, but it, but it raises the question of like, at the end of the day, are there enough? deficit hawks in the Senate to actually constrain this process? Or do they eventually reach the sort of obvious resolution of just like take out all the tax increases? And if that means you need to scale back the rate cuts like a little to make Susan Collins happy or something, 
I mean, everything gets scaled back, right? I mean, when Bush wanted to cut taxes and then he had to scale it back a little because of Susan Collins and Obama wanted a stimulus and he had to scale it back a little because of Susan Collins. And that's just like, like that's just kind of life, right? <laughs> that's her role in the world. <laughs> no, but which is different from like on Obamacare, she became like a pretty hard no, right? She was like, right. she was like, I am not going to vote for a bill that guts Medicaid. Right. Became like a bottom line. It wasn't like you're going to have to gut Medicaid a little bit less. Uh, But it's I feel like a lot of the Senate has kind of like I mean, they're in town, but they've sort of like fled to the hills. Yeah, it's I think there's a question based on how we've seen this Republican Congress operate so far. I mean, they came within one vote of passing an Obamacare repeal bill, the Senate did, the House did pass it, um, even though many House members, districts and constituents and interest groups uh, would have been very negatively affected by that bill. And they were willing to just sort of cast all that to the wind because uh, President Trump wanted this win. And this was the sort of thing that Republicans had promised to do for a long time. It's what their donors wanted. So, I do think it's a real question uh, whether the crude political imperative of just doing something, of just not failing again, being embarrassed again, will drive enough of them to pass something. On the deficit question specifically, you do have Bob Corker, a senator from Tennessee, who just announced he's retiring. And he said that he won't support any tax bill that adds even a penny to the deficit. Although now, he also reached a this little, compromise that would yes. add like 150 trillion pennies. <laughs> yes, th- there's there's a little wiggle room that he has set up for himself, uh, which he said, well, I would accept a reasonable dynamic score. And, um, and, and yes, he orchestrated this budget resolution compromise with Pat Toomey that, um, that lets the tax bill raised the deficit by 1.5 trillion over 10 years but he sort of characterized this as kind of you know giving giving some running room to write the bill but in any case he's signaled that he's going to try to be tough on the deficit he's retiring so he's not vulnerable to a primary challenge they they'll have very little political leverage in trying to get his vote and uh basically he says that you know the debt is the biggest challenge to America, and he's going to close out his term really trying to make sure that um, that they don't blow up the deficit. So he's one issue. And then, so the real question is whether the deficit hawk faction is bigger than him, and especially if there are a bunch of them who want to continue to have careers in Congress, who might uh, be vulnerable to primary challenges for not supporting President Trump's tax bill because of their whiny concerns about the deficit. Um, And we don't know yet. Um, Maybe uh, Susan Collins, uh, John McCain, and uh, Bob Corker would sort of band together. But it's also possible that um, when they do band together, that that, um, it might be less of a hard no uh, and more of just kind of a, you know, half a loaf kind of thing. Like, uh, like not one penny is a strong negotiating stance, but um, but we'll see if he sticks by it. And and Lisa Murkowski, who obviously became a huge stumbling block on on healthcare, a, a big priority of hers is, is drilling in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, and that's been sort of folded into this 
legislation. I mean, both, I think, because that's something that, like, most Republicans just want to do, although they probably don't care as much as she does about it. But but it also seems like a key sort of, like, effort to get her, like, on the team in, in a way that she she never really was for, for the healthcare effort. So the question of, you know, Corker then becomes very sort of significant, right? Because, I mean, if he means a lot about this, I mean, McCain is in a similar situation being immune to pressure. Uh, McCain voted against the the Bush tax cuts, uh, unlike, you know, um, ultra-conservatives like Dianne Feinstein. Um, so <laughs> that's a joke about Dianne Feinstein, but she did vote for it. I mean, 12 Democrats voted for that bill and John McCain did not. And it still couldn't break a filibuster. It's it's wild. <laughs> well, it was a different time. There was yeah. a, a lot of crazy legislating in the, in the early aughts. Um, a Medicare, Medicare bill passed with 51 votes, but no reconciliation instructions. But so... Uh, I just guess we we haven't really heard, like, John McCain a week ago said, like, there should be a bipartisan process on tax reform, which, like, there clearly isn't going to be. And there he, were, he, he's also said, like, wait and see. So so right. he's been, he's like, I'll wait and see what they come up with. So, you know, he he's he's giving his sort of same process shtick, but it, it's unclear if he will, you know— a lot of his objections to the Obamacare repeal bill process were framed in terms of, you know, this is what Democrats themselves did in transforming the healthcare system. And, um, you know, it, it's not clear if he will be um, similarly motivated to oppose like a tax cut bill that's done in this way. I think that the trouble for him, you know, I mean, I, I know what's frustrating about McCain from a leadership perspective is that he he likes to say things like let's wait and see rather than saying something constructive like i would vote for this if it did something specific and then you could tell right he he's he's both like a very pivotal player on legislation but also often disengaged from the process of crafting legislation but yeah. then also very hung up on procedural issues but it's like it, there's there's something a, a little bit i mean make McCain, in some ways, became like a, the hero of, of the healthcare thing, but he, he has a very odd approach to the work of being a United States senator. Like he could like get in the mix on any of these topics, like much further upstream, and shape policy in in some direction or other. But outside of of things uh, related to the military, he he doesn't really do that. He likes to kind of um, uh, do quippy quotes and sometimes scuttle. Uh, skinny repeal bills at, at the last minute rather than actually be involved in things. And, and you're really seeing that on, on taxes, right? Like, he's clearly a huge question for this tax reform effort, but he's not, he's not like, putting answers in. Yeah, and, um, you know, also on that front, he is partially responsible for the revival of Obamacare repeal in September when he just happened to say one day, oh, I really like this Grand Cassidy bill. I'd probably be for it. And, uh, and then <laughs> Republicans were like, oh, okay. And they started bringing it back. And uh, then he, that, then weeks he later, <laughs> after weeks of work, just said, uh, no, actually, I'm not for it. I have all the same process objections I had before. Truly really one of the greatest pranks I've ever seen. Well, but so the thing is, is that by doing that, he seems to have scuttled uh, the effort to pass a DREAM Act, which he favors, right? So, it, it, I mean, anyway, there's a lot of questions about this. It's, it's, to me, strange that one of the most influential and high-profile senators of the past 15, 20 years also has such a scattershot 
approach to the job of of senatoring. Um, it is a in some ways like a like a long way from uh, Bill Bradley and Bob Packwood like plugging away on on their tax reform bill uh, over over a series of months. Um, but so, sort of final thought: like, when is the the, the Senate and, and the House supposed to like sit down and, and hash out this this unified budget? Well, it, it could really happen in one of two ways. Uh, one is that they do sit down and hash out a unified budget, and then it would have to pass both the House again and then the Senate again. The other way is that the House could just accept whatever budget passes the Senate. And that is the next sort of passing a budget through the Senate is the next hurdle that they have to jump over. Uh, and and that could take a couple of weeks. Uh, Thad Cochran's not expected to come back until uh, October 16th, I believe, uh, or somewhere around then. And uh, something will have to get through the Senate. And then either the House or Senate will have some sort of negotiation on a budget resolution, or the House will just cave and accept the Senate's budget resolution to keep the process going. Then after that, the House is supposed to write its bill and pass it. They've set a very aggressive, optimistic timeline of doing it um, either in October or November. And then the Senate is supposed to do the same. And and then they're supposed to have a conference and uh, get it done and sent to Trump by the end of the year, which seems fast to me, but we'll see how it goes. Right. So other than the budget, they also just need a tax plan. And if they have a budget and a tax plan, then they can move forward with winding up the votes. But so far, they have really, really neither of those things. And we've seen that, you know, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's preferred way of legislating on major issues is to just release nothing for a long time, write a bill in secret, drop it suddenly, and then try to move it as quickly as possible. Now, this will go a little more slowly this time because um, because the tax writing committees say uh, are saying they want to do a real markup this time. Like the Obamacare repeal bill, it technically went through committees in the House, but but it was kind of fake. They didn't really accept any substantive amendments. They just rubber stamped uh, what leadership had concocted. And so they're at least making noises that the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee will like actually mark this thing up, that that they will consider serious amendments, that, you know, they'll debate it, and, and, and that this will be sort of the return to a more regular order process of the kind that we didn't see in health reform. So, so that could... Um, that could slow things down a little bit and and, and also allow for more, uh, you know, actual participation from members of Congress than we saw on the Obamacare repeal bill. But in the end, um, leadership is going to be in charge of what makes it to the floor for a final vote. Right. So we'll we'll have to see if they if they stick by that. And and I think, you know, there there should be plenty more opportunities to to chew this over when we start to see them develop something closer to a to a real plan. They they had a lot of fanfare around this, but actually a punting on an enormous amount of stuff. Um, okay, so so thanks to Andrew and Dylan for for joining me. Um, thanks to uh, Riyad Shawi, our engineer here in DC, and Peter Leonard producing up from New York. Um, thanks to our sponsors and uh, thanks to all of you for for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with more weeds. <laughs>